0: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare.
1: Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashanker, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more
2: found helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity.
1: For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umeshankar has advice on the first most important step.
2: I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis.
1: To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health.
2: When we think of slavery
1: in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series,
2: Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org
0: unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Atheneum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. I've seen all good
3: That was for you, John Dankoski. Uh, yes, there actually are. First of all, yes, that was yes. Uh, and second of all, there are actually more than one fairly okay chess song. But that's that's the chess song, as far as I'm concerned. We're going to be talking about chess today as well as other games. Uh, because, mainly, of a book by Oliver Rader, uh, it's called Seven Games, uh, A Human History. Uh, and it looks at the history, and present and future, of Chess and Checkers and Scrabble and Go and Bridge and Poker, and that feels like six. There's one of them that that I'm forgetting right now, Uh, but he's with us right now, and he can tell me which one I just left out. Also with us for this segment, Jenny Adams, an associate professor of English at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and author of Power Play, The Literature and Politics of Chess in the Late Middle Ages, among other books. So uh, first of all, Oliver Rader, um, thanks for being here. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. What did I leave out? I did. I feel like I did six. Well, and it's seven. hard.
0: It's hard enough for me as the author of the book to remember all seven. Um, did you say backgammon?
3: Yeah, that's the one I left out. Um, the thing is, I don't really know how to play. I know I sort of know how to move the pieces around in chess, and I could get through a game of Scrabble. Uh, but I'm really, uh, I'm just for some reason or other not board game oriented. The board game I've played the most is Stratego, which is a game most people don't want to play with me. So, um, <laughs> so it has that enduring characteristic to it. So uh, maybe just let's start with the idea of these games. I would imagine that if some kind of extraterrestrial you know, superior race was doing an anthropological report on our planet, they'd say, well, they do this thing that's completely unnecessary, which is they place themselves in conflict with another member of their species – Uh, in in this, you know, rather well and complicated, mapped out format for the purposes, as far as we can tell, of getting enjoyment out of it. But it doesn't really make any sense to us. So, explain to that master race from another uh, galaxy why it is we're doing this.
0: Well first of all I'm I'm not entirely sure I buy the premise I, I think if we're visited by uh, an advanced alien species they might say oh hey we play that game too <laughs> I think I think games are universal and indeed uh, an ancient game like the, the ancient Chinese board game of go uh, more than one researcher who has studied this game and its sort of stark elegant simplicity has said exactly that if we ever find intelligent alien, life they surely too will play go that's how sort of discovered rather than invented that game in particular feels but you know why do we do this well we do it for the reasons you mentioned uh enjoyment uh coming together with our fellow human and i think there's you know a constellation of other sort of deeper reasons too i think each game in my book and each game in general in its own way is sort of a slice of life a sort of crystallized model of some small aspect of the real world and therefore playing them is a form of practice a form of um practicing this aspect that that whatever game you're playing captures and just one more thing i would add is that that games are a certain type of art form and i don't mean art form in any sort of highfalutin sense but in a literal sense that they are a specific Mm -hmm. art form namely That which captures human agency, whereas painting captures the visual world, games capture agency, these modes of deliberating, deciding, acting, seeing the fruits of our actions manifest in the world, in this case, the world of a game.
3: Good answer. Um, and almost like you were ready for that question somehow. Um, although, <laughs> although an argument could also be made, particularly because most of these games, many of these games, track back for thousands of years. You know, my my crude impression of life thousands of years ago was that subsistence was a pretty big effort. You know, I mean, just getting the stuff you needed, getting the fire lit, getting, you know, making sure everything was relatively safe. Um, it took up an awful lot of time and energy. Uh, it, it surprises me to think of people having this. Surplus energy to play these games, but but I know another theory is there actually wasn't that much to do.
0: Yeah, I think. Well, I think both of those things are right. I think uh, also there's a. A famous uh, philologist who has studied ancient games, uh, Irving Finkel, at the British Museum, and he said games were popular in ancient times because exactly that there was bugger all to do, in his words. Um, but I think to the subsistence point, I, there's there's a, a popular story about sort of the evolutionary development of early gaming, and, and I can't vouch for its uh, truth value, but it's compelling to me nonetheless, which is that, well, let's say we, we're hunters. Uh, we're early early man, and we have to hunt together food, and there's a few ways we could go about this. One, we could hunt all the time, but this is probably a bad idea because hunting is very dangerous. It's saber-toothed tigers and whatever. Two, we could never hunt, but this is also a bad idea because then we never become any good at hunting, and when we have to hunt, we're not we're not going to be successful. Three, we could invent a game. We could say, take take this pile of rocks. We'll take turns throwing them at that tree over there. And we will safely get better at hunting. Uh, so this sort of middle path of games, again, as practice. Again, I have no idea the uh, <laughs> archaeological validity of this story, but I, I find it compelling.
3: Right. So you run diagonally at the saber-toothed tiger. You move two spaces forward and then to the side <laughs> against the saber-toothed tiger. I'll go straight ahead at the saber-toothed tiger, and that'll completely confuse this animal, uh, and, and maybe us as well. So let's, let's talk about uh, chess itself. That's sort of where we're going to focus here for a few minutes anyway. Um, and uh, I guess there are kind of multiple versions of the origins of, of chess, but one which you consider to be a, a fairly reliable one uh, that takes us back, I believe, to India. So so tell us.
0: Yeah, I I think uh, roughly 1,500 years old is sort of the most commonly pointed to figure. And, you know, as, as best I understand it, invented as sort of what it looks like, uh, a miniaturized military exercise uh, with some of the early pieces sort of embodied elements of uh, the Indian army of the day and things like the elephant that would later, um, uh, transmogrify into modern day bishops and, and rooks. Um, so yeah, sort of, sort of, it, it does what it says on the tin, you know, it was, it looks like a small battle and, and was indeed invented, um, as a small battle, but, you know, as with a lot of, um, These ancient uh, games sort of pinpointing an inventor or a precise motivation for their invention, um, at least as far as my research uh, is concerned, is is very difficult to do. The trail goes cold or convoluted.
3: Let's bring Jenny Adams in here. Um, so let's fast forward a little bit to the Middle Ages. Trade route, routes are opening up. Um, life is changing. We think of the Middle Ages uh, as this time of superstition and prim- primitivity, but I think, as you point out, uh, it's actually also a time of flowering and, and the globe getting a little bit smaller. And so, h- how does that affect what we come to know as chess? Oh,
2: thank you so much for having me, first of all. And yeah, I, you know, I could say thanks for giving me a chance to say many of us don't think of it as a time of superstition Mm -hmm. (laughs) and backwardness. Um, Not that you said that, but yeah, well, us will always take any chance to talk about the wonders of the Middle Ages whenever we get it. Um, But yeah, so the, so chess did come into the European world through, as you point out, trade routes, either through Spain or through Italy. And uh, at that point, it actually drifted a little bit away from, as Oliver really definitely pointed out a game of war and into something I think. Really more complicated. Again, to borrow Oliver's words of if a game is a slice of life, uh, I think medieval European writers wanted to see it as encompassing all of life. Uh, it really became an allegory for the social order. And we see that in the name changes, right, to the pieces. The, the bishops come out of the elephants and the foot soldiers uh, get differentiated often into different trades. The queen is a repurposing of the vizier, which was a male figure next to the Shah um, or king. So it was interesting how the moment that chess enters the European world, people want to see it as a complete slice of European life, a kind of frozen image of a balanced social order.
3: Jenny, there's a way in which I think, you know, that becomes... A trend, I, or a trope, or something. I mean, the way in which chess comes to be, uh, and I think it even might even be something approaching the the last sentence or two of Oliver's chapter on, on chess. That chess becomes uh, a metaphor, uh, becomes a way of of working out different kinds of power relations, and that goes on and on. I mean, there's this famous scene in in the HBO series The Wire uh, where these two young drug runners uh, are in the projects and an older one, D'Angelo, is explaining chess to them. Uh, And he explains it entirely in terms of this vast drug operation that they're all involved in. And they, who are the lowest-ranking sort of foot soldiers in that world keep asking the question what's that whole thing about how the pawn gets to the back line and can become really really powerful they, they and, and he keeps saying that almost never happens uh, but they're sort of clinging to that idea all right so if i make it to the other end i win if you catch the other dude's king and trap it then you win all right but if i make it to the end i'm
2: top dog nah yo it ain't like that look pawns, man, in the game, they get capped quick. They'd be out the game early.
3: But Jenny, you're suggesting that even, let's go back to the Middle Ages for a second, there were ways in which this suddenly enabled people to talk about or or play about certain kinds of relationships, maybe especially between men and women?
2: Yeah, between men and women. And I would say kind of, uh, well, even larger than that, if we think about uh, this, I mean, it's easy for us to think of the social order now in ways that you just described it, right? You have these fawns, these foot soldiers, and how can they ever reach the end and get, you know, promoted? Um, but before people started seeing chess as a kind of mirror of social order, the biggest kind of allegory for the social order was the human body. This goes back to Aristotle's time, right? You see, the state is the body, the king is the head, the knights are the arms, the tax collectors are the stomach, right? It's this kind of organic collective. But once you recast that in terms of chess, it becomes social and professional relations that tie people together. And that gives you a lot more autonomy if you're a piece on the board, right? You're moving and your actions affect other people and other people's actions affect you, but you can kind of control how you're being moved. You're suddenly not a foot being pulled along um, with a body. And I think that that's a huge shift in the way uh, the European world conceived of itself. Um, and I think you're seeing that, you know, in, in The Wire, where people are wondering, what kinds of social relationships do I have to have to enable a type of promotion?
3: I mean, I assume also one of the radical changes, Jenny, is the addition of a piece called The Queen, right? I, I think that, uh, at least reading your work, it seems as though that's a, a, a male piece called The Vizier or something uh, before this change happens
2: yeah that was a that's a huge shift and uh again i think it's it's interesting that that happened you know with this import of the game it almost immediately switched a lot of times they kept the name um for it the the firtsen was was what the european version was which is a kind of euro euro version of vizier uh and yet gender switched it immediately when it came into to england i mean, sorry, Europe, I think about, I'm thinking about England right now, but into all parts of Europe, uh, and the anxieties that promote, that produced with like pawn promotion, right? Because when you promote a pawn, it's suddenly a what is seen as a male piece becoming a female piece, and there's a lot of, you know, kind of anxiety about that in the Middle Ages, uh, although probably less so than there is in other places now, but what does it mean to have this, this piece on the board? Also, uh, not until the end of the Middle Ages does the queen get her powers. In Marilyn Yellen's book on the chess queen, she you know kind of makes some arguments about why this happened. But it's interesting that at the end of the Middle Ages, you get this sudden increase in power, and it could be because there, you know, it was happened under a powerful woman um it could also be that with the development of cards coming onto the scene chess players were looking to speed up the game and make it more interesting and so that presented an easy solution to give this one piece which had a really limited powers up until the 15th century to infuse it with some extra power
3: i hadn't thought about all all that stuff that you just said and it's It's amazing. I mean, and imagine that a promoted pawn needed to go to the bathroom, like which bathroom? (laughs) And let's say you're playing in North Carolina, you know, there might be different (laughs) rules there. Um, So, you know, in a way, um, Oliver, the next set of power relations that we probably are going to have to work out in a pretty radical paradigm shift kind of way will be and maybe already is, our relationship with AI, with artificial intelligence. And in a way, chess has been a leading edge for this already, in a way that's uh, fiercely chronicled in your book. But also in other places, Katma let's hear A1. Bishop takes Knight's pawn I love a wolf.
0: Uh, to King one.
2: I'm
0: sorry, Frank, I think you missed it. Queen to bishop three, bishop takes queen, knight takes bishop, mate. Uh,
2: yeah, it looks like you're right.
1: And Thank you for a very enjoyable game.
3: So that, of course, is 2001. Oliver, uh... Chess may be predictive of our ultimate uh, battles uh, and, and negotiations and navigations with artificial intelligence. But it turns out that Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick already knew that way before this conversation is taking place. You're, in your book, you talk a lot about these sort of John Henry-like uh, pairings or, or competitions between humans uh, and, and artificial intelligence, especially Kasparov versus Deep Blue. I don't, Maybe you want to say a word or two about all that.
0: Sure. Yeah, uh, um, games have uh, been central and essential to the development of modern AI. As long as there have been computers, their programmers and and creators have have unleashed them on games. And why have they done this? Uh, well, just like why do humans play games? There's a handful of reasons. One is. Games have nice features um, that make them easy, easily analyzable by, by AI. they uh, at least classic games like chess um, are discrete. I take a turn, you take a turn, I take a turn, and so on. Uh, there's winners and losers. It's easy to measure um, how strong, how well your computer program is performing. It's um, so easy to, to collect data. And, and so on. Um, so put another way, uh, just like I was arguing that games are practiced for humans, uh, games are unquestionably practiced for computers. The idea being that if I can get a computer uh, to play chess well, say, then I've um, my computer has exhibited at least some form of intelligence. And indeed, if you look back to a document from the 1950s proposing this sort of Uh, this er ur-text of AI proposing this symposium at Dartmouth in 1956. Uh, They said, we want to make computers do these highest callings of mankind. And they listed them out. And it was like writing music, solving mathematical theorems, and playing chess. Those are like the three things that, that they chose. And yeah, this culminated in a way in 1996 and 1997 uh, with a supercomputer built by a team at IBM called Deep Blue uh, that played against Garry Kasparov, the world chess champion at the time, and certainly at that time, one of the greatest players, if not the greatest player who had ever lived. And, you know, spoiler alert, the supercomputer beat Garry Kasparov, uh, bringing about a sort of You know, wave of existential dread among some uh, and certainly low uh, grade dread among many. But the point I'm careful to make in the book is that while events like Deep Blue versus Gary Kasparov are are often, if not always, billed contemporaneously as man versus machine, or human versus machine. There's really no such thing. These are all human versus human contests, just human in two different roles. So human as games player and human as engineer or, or computer programmer. And, and I try to uh, give sort of equal screen time to, to both sorts of characters in my book.
3: Yeah, so um, let me play uh, another clip from another yet another chess movie. Uh, and this is Searching for Bobby Fischer. Uh, we're going to hear the voice of Ben Kingsley uh, as the coach, Bruce.
1: Those who play for fun are not at all. Dismiss it as a game. The ones who devote their lives to it for the most part insist that it's a science, it's neither. Bobby Fischer got underneath it like no one before him and found at its center art. I've spent my life trying to play like him. Most of these guys have, but we're like forges.
3: We're competent fakes. So there's a lot we could unpack there, but we don't have enough time. But Oliver, it you know, one of the things that occurred to me is that um, that yes, we talk a lot about and focus a lot about um, contests between a Kasparov and a Deep Blue. But another thing the world of computers and the digital universe seem to have done is create opportunities to get a lot better at chess for humans who don't have to wait for their weekly appointment with Bruce, uh, Ben Kingsley. There, as I understand it, are there's a lot of stuff available now so that you can go from just knowing how the pieces move to getting quite a bit better without necessarily relying on a coach.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's Very difficult for me right now to not quote the entire rest of that movie, uh, having seen it as I have uh, probably hundreds of times. Um, But yeah, one of the most profound impacts of AI in the game's context is the acceleration of the dissemination of skill and the democratization of skill uh, for precisely the reason you say. Um, democratization because it's it's cheap to learn lessons about games now. You don't have to pay Bruce Pandolfini, you don't have to visit a chess club. you don't have to travel. you just log on the internet and watch YouTube. Uh, and the uh, and the skill that is being disseminated is of a much higher quality because AI players and chess usually called engines, Have taught us things about the game um have improved our analyses of of openings in chess for example and um ideas in the in the middle game that humans considered inviolable in the past are now considered viable and so on so you see this without exception in every single game uh, that's received computer scientific attention humans have gotten a lot a lot better. And I think this is as a games lover, I think this is fascinating and, and to the good.
3: Yeah. So, um, Jenny, before we go, you know, I mean, despite the fact that we talked about the queen, we're also talking about uh, an awful lot of male figures here, whether we're talking about Bobby Fischer, uh, whether we're talking about Gary Kasparov Um And one of the things that really sort of grabbed the world this year, uh, or last year, or whenever it was, was the uh, series Queen's Gambit. Um, I had already read Walter Tevis' amazing novel when it came out. Um, But... I, I'm assuming, I mean, I think I've read it set off a, a real new wave of interest in chess, especially among young women. Maybe you could just say a little bit about the degree to which gender has kind of cast its shadow uh, over the world of chess.
2: Sure. Thanks. Um, I, again, going back to the Middle Ages, you see lots of depictions of female players, far more than you might expect. Uh, there's a story called Huan Bordeaux, or Juan's daughter is supposedly this— grandmaster who defeats everyone. And, um, uh, again, I could recite more stories like that. <laughs> uh, and I think a lot of times these are just players who get overlooked. Um, and I'm sure there are more strong female chess players out there than we know of. Um, uh, again, in like so many areas, women are often discouraged into taking on that game or certain roles. Um, the, in the, the uh mechanical uh the mechanical automaton the mechanical turk that toured in the 18th century there's some history that the person inside playing that was uh the owner's wife so again, it's, it's, I think that is a metaphor for how um, hiding in plain sight are often women um, moving pieces on the board. And I hope that the Queen's Gambit can inspire um, more women to play and also to play different types of chess. Um, I mean, I'm not sure that the standard game that we know is, uh, is a game that women are, you know, women might be, have, have better strategies, play speed chess better. There, there are different types of chess that women can play and, and should get acknowledged for it.
3: We're going to have to stop there. Uh, Jenny Adams, Associate Professor of English, University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and the author of Power Play The Literature and Politics of Chess in the Late Middle Ages, among other books. Thanks for being here. We'll take a break. Oliver will be back, and we'll scramble over to Scrabble. Well, we're not going to play either one of those right now. We're going to play Scrabble. Although I actually did also come across a saying somewhere else today that... that America plays Monopoly and Russia plays chess, uh, which seems very appropriate for the—grimly uh, appropriate for the present moment. All right, we're going to talk about Scrabble. Oliver Rader still with us, a journalist and author of Seven Games, A Human History. Uh, Lindsay Shin is a competitive Scrabble player who's been playing competitively for about 20 years. She organizes an annual Scrabble tournament in New Orleans. So, Oliver, you know, this is one of these games—I Like I, I, I played Scrabble and probably— Uh, In a burst of overconfidence, I would think that I would be pretty good at at Scrabble because, you know, I've been a professional writer for all of my adult life. I feel like I have a pretty good vocabulary command of the English language. I would guess that that would give me something of a competitive advantage uh, at Scrabble. But apparently I would be wrong yeah I
0: I sure I think on the margins you're having uh, worked in the jobs you've done will will we'll give you some advantage, but nothing close to uh, the work that you need to put in, which is just learning tens and tens of thousands of words that are a in the Scrabble dictionary and B simply, don't come up in day-to-day life but are are nonetheless um, valid words all the same and I think there's no there's no avoiding the real work one has to put in at the beginning of one's Scrabble career which is simple and rote and mundane but necessary which is memorizing memorizing words uh from from a Long, long, long list of words
3: and and the one thing that this does ultimately, and then we 'll transition to Lindsay, I think, is it if you do something like that, and we should say that you have done something like that, probably of all these games of the seven games in your book, this is the one that you are the most proficient at and the most competitive at, but it, it turns you into somebody who really can 't play the game. For fun with normal people anymore, right? I mean, if you tried to play Scrabble with your family at Thanksgiving, nobody would be particularly happy with the experience, I'm assuming.
0: Yeah, that's about right. And and, and yeah, I think it's fair to say it's the game in my book that I'm personally best at, because in grad school, I did exactly what I was describing, which was spend thousands of hours studying words, much, I'm sure, much to the chagrin of my thesis committee, Um, But yeah, I I think many people, certainly people in my own family, consider themselves owners of large vocabularies and therefore proficient Scrabble players and are absolutely disgusted to find out that AA is a valid word or XU is a valid word. All these things which are just... Second nature to to competitive Scrabble players, uh, nu- nu- the nucleotides of, of the game uh, seem seem like cheating. I think to to those who haven't <laughs> wasted so much time playing.
3: So one way to solve that problem is to be Lindsay Shin, at least in terms of uh, having a family that can all be more or less on the same page or tile about Scrabble. As I understand it, uh, Lindsay, you're a very competitive, I mean competitive in terms of tournament competitive uh, Scrabble uh, player, as is your husband and now also your kids as well. Do I have that right?
4: You do. And actually, just, just yesterday, we've signed up our 10-year-old to compete in the upcoming school Scrabble Championships. So uh, they the organizers reached out to us and you know, had seen her play online last year. Um, so we're excited to bring her up to Washington DC for that event. And this will be her first in-person tournament. So it's really exciting for our whole family and exciting for, for me and, and my husband to, to experience Scrabble in a new way too.
3: So, uh, you know, um, Oliver's already pointed out one of the things that you need to do is learn all these words that really aren't commonly used and uh, commonly in most people's heads. There's another way, though, that there's a lot of math in Scrabble and a lot of, I don't know, strategizing and, and conserving certain things for the future. Can you maybe a little bit talk, talk a little bit about the, the invisible part uh, of Scrabble, invisible to most of us who take the game out of the box a couple of times a year?
4: Sure. I think, um, you know, the, the goal of the game is to score the most points. So even though to score those points, you need to use words, the goal is to get as many as you can. And I think that sometimes we lose our, our focus there and we, you know, concentrate on all these words when in fact, let's look at the tiles and let's see where the the larger value tiles go and fit nicely on the board in order to maximize, you know, the use of those colorful spaces um, on the board that
3: that's given you, and, and Oliver, since there's also kind of almost a, a tile equivalent of of gambling, card counting, you kind of have to know what's left in the bag, right? You have to know what could come up as tiles get replaced.
0: Yes, Scrabble's interesting in that way. It sort of transitions from a game of incomplete information like poker to a game of complete information as the bag of tiles empties. So competitive players are allowed, and indeed nearly all of them do, track the tiles as they're played. And then if you've done this correctly, by the time the the bag has emptied, you know exactly what you have, of course, and you know exactly what your opponent has. And it transitions into sort of more game theoretic uh sort of more chess-like game uh, almost um toward the end but yeah at the beginning uh, there's still a lot of luck in scrabble but uh, tremendous tremendous amounts of of skill that usually that will always uh, swamp the luck in the long run
3: you know the other thing that i was astonished to learn in your book and sort of pleased to learn that uh, obviously we know the story of bobby fisher this kind of enigmatic uh, and often hermit-like genius uh, who operated at some kind of psychological and often physical remove from the rest of the world, that Scrabble actually has its own Bobby Fischer. Uh, tell us about Nigel Richards.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't want to be too quick to uh, <laughs> compare anyone to Bobby Fischer uh, along all dimensions, but certainly in a sort of uh, the sense of dominating the game. Uh, yeah, Nigel Richards. Uh, t- to be perfectly honest, I don't know a ton about the man, and I don't think a lot of people do. He sort of just shows up at Scrabble tournaments, wins them, and. And leaves. Uh, he's a many-time, uh, multi-time world champion, multi-time U.S. national champion, and notably, the French national champion, uh, despite not speaking French. Uh, so, just someone with a, a preternatural ability to to memorize and deploy words, and to deploy them um, efficiently. Um, which, of course, it's a it's a game of scoring the most points, uh, and uh, and he almost always scores uh, the most points.
3: And, and, I mean, he does all of those things and wins all those championships, despite, as I recall, living in New Zealand and getting to some tournaments by riding his bike there?
0: Yeah, I think he, he's a New Zealander who, at least last I knew, resided in Malaysia. But, yes, indeed, there's a famous story about his first big uh, New Zealand tournament where he bicycled 14 hours, uh, won the tournament, and, and promptly bicycled back. So, yeah, I think that's, that's sort of the... Um, the epitome of a Nigel Richards
3: tale. Right. No smartphone, no television, no real evidence that he's anywhere on the Internet. So, Lindsay, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about, I mean, it, when I read about this, when I hear you and Oliver talk about this, it starts to seem a little more like work and a little bit less like fun. So how do you and your family, if you're going to be this competitive, if you're going to try to be, you know, highly ranked uh, Scrabble players. How do you keep it fun?
4: Sure. Um, you know, as Oliver mentioned, there's so many repetitive, you know, study processes that we do. Um, we have the one thing that I do is we've created a, a long list of words and there's a computer program that will essentially quiz me on it in order to help me, you know, see it a certain frequency, whether I know it or not. You know, if I, if I know a certain set of letters really well and I know all the words that it makes then maybe I don't need to review that one as much. so this program is able to 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 do those um, to do that math for me and then quiz me accordingly. So um, sometimes you can change up those lists and study interesting words that maybe you know have a z in it or maybe have l i k e as part of the word. Um, and that way it just kind of keeps your brain fresh and keeps you reviewing, um, just a bunch of different words. Um, and then like my husband, who's, you know, a higher ranked player, he'll, you know, the words that he's studying are certainly um, less likely to come up on our racks. So they're, for, for him, it's a much more, um, you know, the longer words or words with very unique combinations. So, um, and oftentimes, you know, we we have discussions about how we haven't seen these words in the wild, or we might see them somewhere on a, on a food package or something like that. Um, and so it's really, it's interesting that we're learning all these words, but we have absolutely no understanding of the definitions of any of them. Um, so it's, a, it certainly is, you know, as Oliver mentioned earlier about, you know, your aunts that you're playing with on the kitchen table who have very good vocabularies and they want to know the definitions of these words. Um, you know, we're not necessarily focused on that during our study times, um, it's simply these letter combinations, um, which are, you know, you know, just repetitive. And it's, it's not easy. And it's a certain task that we choose to take on. You know, it, it's kind of funny that way.
3: And you do it with a certain amount of pizzazz, which I've discovered is a word you don't have to learn. From Scrabble right. <laughs> Because there's four Z's in it and you can never have to make it. So, um, Oliver, before we run out of time here, and we're going to segue uh, into Monopoly at the end, which is not anywhere on Oliver Raider's radar. But we should talk a little bit just about the role of these games during the pandemic. There's sort of a sense in which yeah, we were inside more. We were maybe seeking human connection more. The choices that we had about what we could do with our lives were a little bit more circumscribed. So what happened in the world of board games? We should say some of this is measurable, right, by just commerce and and the use of, of certain websites and servers that crashed under the weight of people using them.
0: Yeah. And, and I want to by way of answering that question, just add something to what Lindsay said, which is yeah, that's a lot of work learning Scrabble words, but it's, I find it to be an incredibly democratizing experience in that you are presented with almost every concept or uh, noun or description or color or ancient uh, thing in the universe all presented on equal terms to you in the form of words, right? Every word is sort of equally weighted in the dictionary and is one of the reasons i like say crossword puzzles this idea of sort of conceptual democracy and i think i think games during the pandemic were a way first and foremost for people to to come together to come together on level terms to come together in the world the worlds that games i think that's one thing and indeed as you say, there's data on this. There's you know record numbers of people joined Chess.com in the early months of the pandemic. Uh, new uh, backgammon uh, website crashed under the weight of of record numbers of new players. There's a new Scrabble website that's flourishing and and on and on and on. This is empirically very, very established, this gaming boom in the pandemic. So yeah, it's coming together, just like we did in ancient times when there was nothing else to do. I mean, we're all pretty familiar with the time where there was not that much to do and games were were an attractive outlet. That's one thing. Um, I think another explanation, sort of uh, what I mentioned in the first segment, this idea of games capturing agency. And I think our agency muscles in the early part of the pandemic especially were atrophying right like we as human beings want to decide and take action and see those actions manifest in the world right and we we couldn't so we turned to the smaller crystallized model worlds of games to decide and take action and see the results manifest and and i think i think it was a form of exercise um and uh and yeah, I I am pleased to see that I think a lot of this has and will continue to stick. I think chess chess is the chief example of this. I and I don't have data on Scrabble, but I get the sense that there's a lot of Scrabble being played. and And I think I think these sort of ancient games are are here to stay. And I think the populations of players are are larger, are younger, are more diverse. And I think it's all wonderful. Um, I wish it didn't require a pandemic, but I think. If you can call it a silver lining, I think it's a silver lining.
3: All right, so uh, we have to go to a break here. We've been talking to Oliver Rader, uh, journalist and author of his, uh, the new book, Seven Games, A Human History. Terrific book, lots of fun to read, even if you're kind of game-impaired the way I am. Uh, if you're at a Scrabble tournament, try to avoid playing anybody named Shin. Uh, the whole family's really good. They have a plan for what they're going to do to block that cue they know you've got on your rack. Uh, but uh, specifically, Lindsay Shin, the mom and wife of the family, competitive Scrabble player who's been playing for about 20 years, organizes an annual Scrabble tournament in New Orleans. Thanks to both of you. We'll take a little break. We'll come back. All right, time to say thank you to our technical producer, Kat Pastor, making the whole thing hum, uh, and to senior producer, uh, Lily Tyson, who's the producer of this particular episode, uh, an episode about games. Our final game will be one that's not in Oliver Raider's book. It is the game of Monopoly, and we are fortunate to have here with us Mary Pilon, a journalist, screenwriter, and author of The Monopolists, Obsession, Fury, and the Scandal, behind the world's favorite board game, among other books. Before we dive in with Mary, it's probably worth pointing out that it's really easy to find clips from movies and television shows about Monopoly, pretty much all of them. You know, if they run long enough, you're going to do a Monopoly scene. Uh, the Sopranos uh, famously uh, had a big argument about whether you could do the money thing at free parking. And like all things among The Sopranos, it revealed a lot of other simmering tensions and potentials for violence. Uh, but let's hear from uh, another family. Uh, no higher functioning really than The Sopranos, maybe a little less so. This is C1Cat.
2: Why don't we play Monopoly?
1: Which version? We've got Star Wars Monopoly, Rasta Monopoly, Gallipolopoly, and Krabopoly. Let's stick to original
2: Monopoly. The game is crazy enough as it is. And be a
3: landlord. Very good question. Uh, Mary may not know the answer to that one, but you do know uh, and will explain to us that the origins uh, of monopoly do lie more specifically uh, in the word landlord and in an attempt uh, by someone who doesn't get a whole lot of credit to make a board game that illustrated the follies and debasing qualities of capitalism. So maybe you can pick up the story there.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Yes, so the story that I heard as a child playing the game and that millions of people heard for decades was that a man named Charles Darrow invented Monopoly during the Great Depression. Uh, he was unemployed, down on his luck, goes into his basement, innovates, creates this game that becomes this massive bestseller uh, and you know saves him and Parker Brothers from the brink of destruction. Uh, the problem with that story is it's not true. Um, the real origin story of Monopoly begins in 1904 with a woman named Elizabeth McGee. And she was a pretty interesting woman. She was an impassioned follower of Henry George, uh, who was a huge deal in his time, but I think has kind of gotten lost to history. And she made the game, uh, originally called it landlord's game as a teaching tool to illustrate the evils of Monopoly. So she gets a patent for her game and it's played for 30 some odd years by who's who of left-wing America and it spreads all over the place. And a version of that game is ultimately sold to Parker Brothers. So it had this whole history as kind of a progressive teaching tool for 30 years before the company started mass marketing the sets.
3: And, and, you know, there was sort of an open source thing that was going on, right? The people who played it would kind of hack it a little bit, do something different with it, add community chest and chance cards, uh, things like that, Right.
1: Yes. So when people were playing the game, uh, the Lizzie McGee version, you know, they would localize the board to make it their own. So if you were playing in Boston, you would have the commons on there. If you were playing in New York, you might have Broadway. Chicago had the loop. Um, And people made these boards on their own. You know, the the tokens that we know today, those were mass marketed by Daos, the same company that made Cracker Jack tokens, actually. Uh, But prior to that, you would have used whatever objects you had around the house, buttons, Etc. So it was very much a homespun folk game uh, in those days.
3: Um, we should say, by the way, speaking of tokens, uh, for those of you who don't keep up on these things, in 2017, I believe the original boot, thimble, and wheelbarrow pieces were replaced by Tyrannosaurus Rex, a penguin, and a rubber ducky. So, uh, you know, they're. Well, I don't know, change is the only constant, maybe? I don't know. But there, there, there's there's sort of a way in which also um, that uh, it's a game that does bring out neuroses. And it does because, – because, in fact, it's sort of not a really well-designed game, I think, uh, compared to the the elegance of games that have come after. It's a little clunky. It's a little odd. But that means what? That who we are as people get to come out more in the way we comport ourselves around the board? Is that fair?
1: Yes. I think that the, the analogy I always use is that to me, Monopoly is like the Model T, right? If if we didn't have the Model T, we wouldn't have a Tesla. Um, I like looking at a Model T. I think it's important to know, but I'm glad I don't drive one every day, right? Mm-hmm. So from a game design standpoint, Monopoly is a really important part of the lineage, but I love playing Settlers of Catan. I love playing these newer games that I do think from a design standpoint are more sophisticated. But again, that's part of the evolution, and I think any game, whether it's Monopoly or Settlers of Catan, there's a role playing aspect. Um, I know when I played as a kid, I'm the youngest in my family, and this was a, a chance that I actually had to beat my older brother at something. I certainly wasn't going to beat him at anything with sports or, um, you know, any feat of strength. And so it brings out this other side of people. You know, my grandmother, who's in her 90s and a tiny little uh, sweetheart who goes to church every Sunday, turns into an animal when she plays Monopoly. And that part about games fascinates me. That you think you know someone, but then when you put a game in front of them, particularly something like Monopoly that's so brutally competitive, we see other sides of people. And I think that's part of why we keep playing and what kind of makes them so irresistible.
3: You know, my favorite Monopoly story that I learned getting ready for this conversation with you, uh, and we're almost out of time here, so you're going to have to tell the story kind of quickly. But um, there, there are these, there's this thing where in World War II, in order to get stuff to POWs that they weren't supposed to have, specifically stuff that maybe they could use to escape the prison that they were in, mon- the Monopoly game was just a great smuggling device
1: so i have a chapter in my book about this this story is so beautiful but it's hard to prove um mm-hmm. <laughs> like a lot of things with Monopoly's history so what we do know is that games in general so cribbage boards playing cards were used um to as to smuggle things to pow's i have yet to find a monopoly board specifically or any evidence any firsthand accounts that really nail this one down so um, if even if it's not true, um, I think the story itself is really interesting because it it sh- certainly has captivated people, and I think that speaks to the nostalgia and the kind of fondness for this game that people that people have um, that we even want to believe the lore, even if we don't totally have the evidence of it. So sorry to be a bummer on that one, but if anybody has a a Monopoly board that they can prove was used. For this purpose, please, you know, shoot me an email. I would
3: love to see it. <laughs> right. I mean, this, sort of the details of the legend are also that um, things like little compasses could be included as game pieces. That money for traveling around could be slipped into the money. That maps somehow there could be slipped in among all the clutter of it. And I mean, one of the things that makes it run, ring true is it's such a you know primordially American game. It's not as though some German inspector uh, at a Stalag is going to go. Wait a minute. It's supposed to have a little dog, not a compass. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it kind of works as a story uh, that way uh, as well. We should quickly say that um, the other thing they've done, we've only got a minute left, but because it's kind of a clunky game, but people still love it, they just keep putting out, it's like it's like the coronavirus. It has so many variants. Now, there, <laughs> there, e- there even is a Sopranos version of this game, but maybe you could say a bit more about it.
1: Yes. Uh, what I think is so interesting about the kind of various incarnations of the game that you can buy, you know, you can get one for your alma mater, one for your hometown, a TV show you love, is that in a funny way that's bringing it back to the folk game roots a century ago when people made these boards their own and localized them. And so I think it's funny that a century later we've kind of come full circle and that we're trying to make the game our own and personalize it just like the folk game players were were doing a hundred years ago.
3: Right. And if you happen to live in Tatooine, there's a star Wars version. Of course there is. <laughs> All right. Mary Pillon, thank you so much for joining us. A journalist, screenwriter, author of the monopolist obsession, fury and the scandal behind the world's favorite board game among other books. Thanks to everybody who listened today. Thanks to Kat uh, for running the board. And thanks to thanks to Lily Tyson for producing this episode.